Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So very, very excited with the, with the founder that we have today, founder, investor, I mean, everything. You know, I think that we're going to be enjoying, you know, quite, you know, a bit this conversation, you know, from, you know, being, you know, at the helm of his business, you know, that he started, you know, for, I mean, obviously now a decade, you know, he's still involved, you know, now more as a chairman, but he was, you know, co-CEO there. And now he is leading the chart, you know, with his new firm, you know, his VC firm that he's been at it now for a few years. So it's going to be interesting to really, you know, hear from his experience, you know, how, it looks like, you know, when you do that transition. But without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Rob Biederman. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Great to be on. So originally born in New York City. So how was life growing up, you know, around the New York City area and then also Chappaqua? Yeah, um, you know, it was a great it was a great place uh, to be a little kid. My family lived pretty close to Central Park. Um, I think when I got to be about four, uh, we started you know, the apartment started to get a little small for a, for a child that liked to run around. Um, and so we moved out to Chappaqua right before my sister was born. Um, and so it was, it was kind of cool to have two perspectives growing up of having, you know, obviously lived in one of the most consequential cities in the, on the planet. And then also in a kind of wonderful suburban town with great public schools. So in your case, you know, what did it look like, like getting into, because I mean, you ended up going to Princeton, but in your case, I mean, how do you end up, you know, like going to Princeton? I mean, why out of all the schools that you had, because obviously, you know, like you had the opportunity as well, you know, to be in the city, to be close to the city, you know, like all the, the stuff going on, like why Princeton? And then also economics, why economics? Well, it's funny. I actually really wanted to be an engineer um, in college and I, I really leaned in a lot to math and science in high school. I think when I got to college, I learned that what I'd enjoyed a lot about high school math and physics was it was really around solving puzzles and it, and it felt like playing games almost. And then I got to undergrad and I think I found that it was way more technical and that economics was actually really the, uh, the puzzle solving. And so I think it was, it was actually a pretty continuous thread in my life from always being obsessed with getting to solutions and, um, Absolutely love the Princeton economics department. And I think that that's really more than probably anything other than my family. What pushed me down into the business world was I remember first semester of freshman year, I was an engineer, but I took uh, economics 101 and I just found it to be this, this kind of magical world of thinking about uh, markets and business in a way that I'd never, never done before. Now, obviously the typical route, you know, when you study economics, and I find that very helpful too, when you become an entrepreneur later on is having on one end the investment banking experience, which you achieved with Goldman Sachs, uh, to be able to really understand how, how it works, you know, good companies, bad companies. But then also, you know, the other, the other part of it was bank capital, you know, which is, you know, obviously more investing into a little bit more earlier stages than what you would typically see at a Goldman Sachs. So what, what experience would you say gave you being at Goldman Sachs and then at Bain to really understand what separates the good from the bad? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I took really um, important messages and, and lessons away from both experiences. Goldman Sachs is a, a company that's just so obsessed with excellence in everything it does. And um, I found that everybody I worked with there was incredibly sharp, incredibly intense, worked really hard, obviously. And it was really my first foray into into kind of the formal business world. Um, and I And that's really where I learned, I think, the core nuts and bolts of kind of finance just as much as uh, as an undergrad and then when i moved up to boston to work at bain capital after two years probably without a doubt the most intellectually rigorous group of people i've ever worked with uh unbelievable analysts of businesses a great culture really had a family feel i think a lot of the time the private equity industry gets a really bad rap for you know um mistreating management teams or or uh letting a lot of employees go and i think bain capital was this incredibly noble place where we, you know, God's honest, wanted to improve the companies we bought and not, not just by terminating employees, but by, by growing the revenue side. And I think we had this, this belief there that I think we've, we've kind of continued at asymmetric, which is that everything, if you have sort of economically attractive revenue growth, everything good comes from there. And that's, that's kind of the first step in any good business outcome is having a product or service that the customer wants to buy at a reasonable price and making sure that that's a defensible value proposition and then it was a it was the, the two years of bank capital were just an unbelievable business training and the two-year mark because at, at goldman sachs you did two years at bain capital you did two years and then you go into business school what the hell was going on with that two-year mark and then you know why business school you know bain capital at that time was very focused on uh sending folks to business school and i'd actually applied to harvard business school and gotten in when i was a senior in college um, and they were very, very gentle and kind and letting me defer twice, uh, two years to work at Goldman and two years to work at, at, at Bain Capital. Um, you know, I think Bain Capital is trying to turn folks into very um, serious professional board members, um, you know, for the time after business school. And I think they, they believe, and I certainly agree with this, I help teach a class at HBS now. I think they believe that supplementing your on-the-job business training with some actual rigor that you might get in an academic environment is really helpful. And I also think business school comes at this wonderful point in your career where you have enough surface area to think critically about everything you've done, but you're not too late in your career to kind of be past the point of learning. So then in this case, you know, for you, you go to, uh, to business school and, uh, you know, you do the shifting of gears, you know, so to speak. And yep. And I think that that gives you some visibility and perhaps, you know, access to uh, an incredible network like HBS does uh, that perhaps pushed you into the world of entrepreneurship. So what was that like? What was that like? Yeah, you know, it was funny. Um, I had no intent of starting a company uh, at HBS. I, you know, Bank Capital very, very graciously paid for my, my time at HBS and I was meant to go back there when school was over. and. Um, you know, I, I basically went to school to try to learn as much as I could and also start playing basketball again, which I'd, which I'd done in undergrad. And I didn't know much about entrepreneurship. In my head, I'd always wanted to start a company as a kid. I'd started some you know, pretty small, tiny little businesses. And I think what I learned at HBS was entrepreneurship was a lot more accessible than I'd assumed it was. Entrepreneurship felt very black box and very um, intimidating to somebody who was not you know, a, a designer or a software engineer had never sold anything. And I think in, in, in a really positive way, HBS really demystified entrepreneurship for us. And it was actually the, the company I started, Catalan, which, be, which began life as Hourly Nerd, uh, was originally founded as part of a class project. Um, 
And I think had I never had that class project, I'd probably still be back at Bain Capital today. So then tell us, you know, how did the idea come about? You know, what was that the incubation, you know, ideation, all that stuff? And then all of a sudden you're running a company. Totally, totally. So it was it was a it was a great program called Field Three, um, where school gave us five thousand dollars and about six to eight weeks to start a company. And I think that there was a, a a bit of a preference for starting businesses that were able to get to revenue reasonably quickly. And so a lot of our classmates started selling T-shirts and other things like that. I think we looked at our unique brand of assets as as folks that had substantially worked in banking, consulting, private equity, and said, you know, what do we what market do we know better than anybody else? And I think that the two markets we knew that, that merged to form Hourly Nerd essentially were. MBA students had a bunch of spare time on their hands and they needed to finance their trips to Costa Rica and, and their, their rent, obviously, and their tuition. And uh, then we also knew that small businesses were substantially locked out of the consulting market. It was actually quite difficult to, um, you know, to be able to access consulting if you were a smaller company. So we created an online marketplace to blend the two. And, and this was, if you think back to February of 2013, Uber was only in probably a handful of cities, certainly TaskRabbit and, and Upwork and Elance Odesk were, were very small compared to where they are today. So it was, it was quite revolutionary stuff. And it certainly was revolutionary to doing, be doing it with business tasks. I think what we, we found over the course of 2013 and 14 was a tremendous amount of inbound use from enterprise customers. So we, we originally designed this as a pure small business product. And all of a sudden, we had arm's length inbound signups from GE and Coca-Cola and other companies. And when we asked the folks why why would they come to you know what was in some sense still a class project for a lot of that period, they said it is so difficult to be able to get elite people to work for us in these in these corporate settings that um, we're we're kind of at wit's end and that we're willing to use this kind of broken website and use our personal credit card in order to be able to get access to those consultants. And I think that was the moment when we realized we had real potential product market fit. And in this case also, you know, like what was, I mean, for the people that are listening, what ended up being the business model of Catalan for the people that are listening to really get it? How were you guys making money there? Yeah. So in the end, we, we, we landed on rather than a software model, we were going to take a percentage of the spend from the customers. And I think if, if you were, you know, GE or Anheuser-Busch, you looked at that and you said, you know, Boehner McKinsey might cost one or two million dollars for this project, and Catalan's going to cost two hundred and fifty k or two hundred k. And uh, you know, if Catalan's taking twenty percent now, about twenty three, twenty four percent, I think they they look at it as a total pricing. So forgetting what the split is between the expert and and the Catalan platform, still feels like we're saving. 70%, 80%. And so they, they didn't much care about where, where how that pie was being split. And I think on the expert side, it's really hard to generate um, generate kind of leads as an independent business consultant. And so we essentially are their outsourced business development arm. And they are, are sort of very pretty happy to variabilize that expense. And I think they all make a tremendous amount of money on the projects anyway. And, and also, how many co-founders of you? I saw that there were, say, a few of you guys. Yeah, there was there was there was more than a few of us, and I think sort of over time, people, uh, the, you know, people's interest dissipated a little bit, um, and so now there are essentially two of us still involved with with the company. My co-founder Pat is is now the sort of sole CEO of the business. We were co-CEOs for eight years, and then I'm chairman. Um, but it was really a cool thing to start a business and uh, you know with a bunch of friends and classmates and actually have it succeed, which is you know surely not the uh, expected outcome. 
And how, how does that work? I mean, typically, because, I mean, having, having that journey where founders, you know, like go in different directions, you know, I'm sure that there's a bunch of people that are listening, you know, like, how does that look like? You know, like perhaps how you can structure things in a way that, you know, if people have like other things, you know, going on or take different directions, you know, how you can go about things, you know, amicably and, and everyone being happy. Yeah, for sure. Look, I think one of the most important things is how uh, equity vests. Um, you know, when you decide to start a business with people, you have no idea where people's minds are going to be four years, six years, 10 years later. And of course, you know, standard equity investing is kind of on the four year time scale. But I think we did a good job of setting up a team that had a balance of skill sets and a balance of kind of commitment and interest levels. And I think each person kind of got off the train at the point that that made the most sense for them. And, uh, you know, all those transitions were incredibly amicable. And also, what about that that co-CEO structure? You know, typically, you know, like you would want to have like one person taking the decisions. How does it work when you have two? Yeah, of course. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of bad PR out there about co-CEO structures. I think Pat, Pat and I were able to make it work for a handful of reasons. I think our relationship was really informed by by deep trust and respect that really um, kind of pervaded everything we did. I also think we had phenomenal alignment in where we were trying to go. And of course, we had incredibly spirited conversations about the tactics and and what we might do in the short term on route to achieving what we were looking for. Um, but I don't think we ever disagreed about where the ultimate, uh, where the where the ship was ultimately headed. And I think if anything, our relationship has become even more rich now that we're in this chairman and CEO uh, construct where obviously, you know, on a day-to-day basis, he's about 100 times more involved than I am. But I think it's nice as a board member who had, had previously co-led the company probably makes it a little easier for me to share opinions and and um, uh, and kind of input and they're backed by you know eight years of being a full-time employee at the company which is pretty special and what are what are those dynamics um, CEO chairman you know the board and and board member I mean how yeah. how how do you go about that relationship making it effectively because at the end of the day the chairman is the one that to a certain degree, manages, you know, the other board members and the CEO, you know, is the one that is running the company and grabbing whatever, um, you know, strategies discussed at a board level and then, you know, executing with the management team. So how does that relationship, you know, work effectively? Yeah, I mean, in some sense, I'd say we almost have more of a kind of informal co-chairman relationship. And I don't necessarily see myself as any different from any of the other board members. I think Pat, Pat is fully capable of running the company on his own at this point. And um, doing that, both the strategy and kind of even one one layer above strategy, sort of corporate strategy versus commercial strategy. Um, you know, I think we, look, we, we've always had an unbelievably uh, collegial group of board members at Catalan. And, and now some of the board members we picked up in 2013, 2014 have become some of our closest friends um, and, and obviously investors in, in my firm. And so, you know, it, it's not the kind of board where we have votes. Like we don't have contentious board meetings. We don't have, you know, knee knee knocker votes where it's three people want to do one thing and two want to do other. I think I think we're pretty pretty thoughtful about building to consensus and alignment. And at the other, you know, once you've been doing it for ten years, and in some cases with some of these folks, um, I think we all kind of know exactly what everybody else is thinking. And so it's it's very much kind of the company and the board against the market rather than the company against the board or the CEO against the chairman. It's very much kind of a all rowing the boat in the same direction. And how much how much has the company raised to date? Uh, we raised just about $130 million. And what was that the journey of going from one cycle to the next to the business? 
Oh man. I mean, our first round, we, we basically almost couldn't raise it. We got really lucky that we met a judge at HBS who'd himself been a alumnus and um, started a company. Uh, he offered to invest in the company, but he said that uh, we had to get somebody else to invest. It couldn't just be couldn't just be him. Went to every accelerator, incubator, angel group, and everybody turned us down for, for a handful of reasons. Some of them were really good. Some, I think, were a little less thoughtful. And uh, where we ultimately landed was we sent Mark. We applied to go on Shark Tank. We got accepted. We unfortunately couldn't make the audition because it conflicted with our first day of class at, at HBS second year. And so we dropped out of the formal Shark Tank process. But we sent Mark Cuban an email directly. And, uh, and he agreed to invest uh, really quickly. And that, that kind of catalyzed everything. And then um, in the fall of 2014, we got inbound from Highland and from Greylock that they wanted to invest as well. We didn't, we didn't need the money at the time, but I think when we met Dan Nova uh, at Highland and Bill Hallman from Greylock, we felt like they were just the kind of DNA we wanted involved in the company, even if we didn't need the money. And I think that was, in some sense, that was kind of the professionalizing moment in the fall of 14, early 15, where we, I think for the first time, really had professional investors on board. And that really, um, really shifted just how we thought about everything. We had, you know, rigorous board meetings and, uh, you know, surely Greylock and Highland are, you know, two of the best firms out there. Hey, guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that, you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard and already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Sieversen, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. So obviously running the business for about seven years and change, you know, yep. as the co-CEO, at what point, you know, do you realize, hey, maybe there's something else for me? Yeah, you know, I, I always fancied myself a little more of an investor than an operator. And I remember a really memorable conversation with Dan Nova um, right, up, right as they were writing our Series A investment check, um, which, was, which was actually in January of 14. And at that point, I was still contracted to go back to Bain Capital. And they said, look, I, you know, it's, it's very likely I actually do go back to Bain Capital. I loved it there. And, and I really want to go back. And he said, you know, I bet, I bet after running the company for three or four months, you'll realize that you're not an investor and you're actually a CEO founder. And I, and I think that that, for me in the moment, was true. I think by the end of the school year in, in the spring of 14, 
I really did have that that belief, and I think that that pervaded you know the seven eight years the eight years that I was CEO. I, I really felt that, and I think as we got into kind of nineteen and twenty, and particularly the pandemic, I started making more annual investments, and I realized how much fun I found it to be involved in a bunch of different businesses. I think at this point, Pat and to some extent I are really you know two miles deep and ten inches wide at Catalent. And what I loved about Bain Capital was being kind of a hundred feet deep and eight miles wide uh, on a bunch of different industries and, you know, having every day be very different because you might be talking to a billboard company or a heart health company. And, um, you know, I approached the board in the summer, really starting in kind of 2019 and 2020 about, you know, what, what might it look like if I started doing more investing um, or what might it look like if I, you know, transitioned to something that looked like a chairman role in order to be able to invest. And I think, you know, at first they were, they were somewhat, um, unreceptive, but I think over time, they kind of realized that, you know, for a lot of what we were doing, Pat was really, you know, managing things day to day. And there wasn't a lot that I was doing as CEO towards the end that I couldn't do from a board member seat that I didn't really need to be a full time employee. And it was actually kind of a magical process, the way the fund came together, where, in some sense, the fund was just as much created by one of our board members uh, as by me. And and he, he actually proposed it to me, we were having iced tea. Uh, out on his patio in the, in August of 2020. And, you know, I said, I think I might be, be ready to kind of start thinking about transitioning out of Catalan. And he said, what do you think you're going to do? I said, I'll go to traditional investment firm, um, probably more venture than private equity. He said, well, what, you know, would you ever consider starting a firm with me? And, uh, and that was, that was, that was a really exciting moment. Um, because I didn't surely with virtually no track record, I didn't have the confidence in myself to think that that was something I could do. Um, and so it was really special. So what happened next? So then I uh, started thinking a little more about, um, you know, w- what I wanted to do and, and how I wanted to phase the transition. Obviously, you know, we were kind of right in the middle of the pandemic there, but but the company was doing really well. Um, I think for so many of the companies that we were trying really hard to sell to, they, they found it really difficult to conceptualize how they would bring in uh, consultants who would work along their full-time employees. And when everybody was full-time in person, I think that that was actually quite intimidating and scary. And then obviously sort of unrelated to the future work in March of 2020, essentially every company went fully remote. And I think over the course of that year, our customers realized how much easier it was to be able to bring in flexible, um, flexible, you know, talent, flexible contractors. And we started working way more collaboratively with them. And so we had a really fantastic summer in, in 2020 and, and, and revenue was, was doing really nicely. So I felt like at that point, the company was in a really good spot and, and you know, Pat was in great shape. And so I, I sort of approached the board in September of 2020 about, you know, beginning to think about what a transition timeline mechanic could look like. And, and I proposed that I would, you know, sort of my, my last day as CEO, I, I would become executive chairman in the fall of 20, I think November, and then uh, become non-executive chairman in February and really get into um, uh, investing at that point. And, you know, my intent was to take a couple months off. Um, and so I went out west to uh, to Jackson Hole and, and uh, tried to become a ski bum for a little bit, but the snow was really bad. Um, and so I found myself, and I think this this was... It's kind of an interesting reflection, you know, obviously, when you when you have a full time job, the idea of taking some time off and doing other stuff, hiking, playing golf seems really interesting. And I remember every day, particularly because the snow was bad, I was really drawn to coming back inside and just working on the pitch deck 
and, and I had this feeling like there were so many exciting deals happening and I was missing them. And uh, I could take this, could take a couple of weeks or months off, but almost every day that I wasn't raising the fund was going to make it, make it more difficult to, you know, be able to, to, to get those deals. And, and I, you know, at the time I was warehousing some deals, you know, out of my, my personal balance sheet, but obviously couldn't write very large checks. And so wasn't necessarily credible when, when facing founders or facing the market. Um, so got together with a bunch of folks, uh, principally I already knew, or my anchor investor already knew, and we raised uh, 105 million um, pretty quickly in the spring of 2021. I attribute that about 95% to his reputation with those folks and 5% to kind of how strong the market was for venture at that point. Um, and then we kind of put together the mechanics. There's actually a lot of starting a venture capital firm is not as easy as starting a company. Like if you want to, if you want to start a company right now, you can, you can have one by the end of the day, but a venture capital firm, because it's essentially kind of a 10 year agreement and a 10 year contract, there's a lot of pieces that have to get into place. Um, and so we spent a lot of the spring and summer, both doing the legal mechanics and getting the firm going and then also hiring. And I remember people. People told me you're going to find it really easy to raise money and almost impossible to hire. And I, I said, I think you have that the exact opposite way. I think fundraising is going to be impossible and be very easy to put the team together. And fundraising only took a couple months and the team took about two years to assemble. So, wow. Because typ typically for, for a firm like this, um, what kind of team members do you really, do you really need? Yeah, so so you know, once, we, once we realized that uh, you know, we're going to be investing $105 million dollars the imperative to put together a team that really had the folks who had the ability to lead deals apart from me became became more relevant and uh, started out interviewing a bunch of people who worked in venture. And I found that they kind of sorted into two groups broadly. Some of them uh, were really world-class, amazing people at great firms. And I think when I pitched them on joining kind of a startup firm out of whole cloth, I think that felt a little risky to them. And then uh, the other group of people I, I, I thought were were talented in certain respects, but given my background as an operator and having been a sort of private equity investor, I didn't feel as if we were going to collaborate all that well. Um, and so ultimately, almost all of the folks I hired or all of them had not previously worked in venture. All of them had either been operators or, or private equity investors at places like Carlisle and KKR. Um, and so I think in, in certain respects, we, we, we've kind of brought a lot of the fire and the energy that I had in the startup context. Then we kind of blended it with a lot of the intellectual rigor and the discipline that we um that, that I think we inherited from being capital. And how much do you have do you guys have right now under management in terms of uh assets? Yeah, so just so still just 105. We've only raised the one fund um and we're approximately halfway deployed with it. I think we'll we'll you know continue to deploy that fund for the rest of this year and maybe into early next. And what's the investment thesis there? So essentially we we believe that you can create a lot of value using you know, traditional analysis of industries and understanding where, particularly for legacy industries, where people are still using phone calls and pens and text messages um, to communicate facts or data or ideas. And so we really, in the, in, you know, in the main back, really early stage software companies, typically at the pre-revenue stage, I think we care a tremendous amount about the founder and we care a lot about the end market. We're completely willing to negotiate on traction. So you know, the last four companies we backed weren't even incorporated at the moment where we invested in them. I think we found that, uh, you know, the VC market is so unbelievably competitive in every little slice of it. The one area that might be a little less competitive is pre-revenue, um, because I think for, for most VC firms, they need to see $1 million of revenue or $5 million of revenue. 
And so the pre-seed market is has some VCs that play in it, but substantially a lot of uh, really just a lot of angels and kind of micro funds. Um, and we like we like that competitive set. I think part of the challenges is you get to checks that are five, ten, twenty million dollars. You start to get into a pretty pretty aggressive competitive set. Now, I think over time we'll probably migrate there, and I think we'll start doing more aggressive follow-ons in our own companies rather than letting the Andreessen's and, and others of the world follow on. Um, but I think when you're when you're a first time fund with with not very much kind of brand awareness, uh, the Series A market is just unbelievably competitive. And what is that thing that you typically look for in founders that you back? Yeah, we, we have quite a we have quite a few factors we look for. I think uh, certainly um, kind of commercial intensity and, and fire in the belly. I think we want to we want to back people that are almost maniacal about solving their pain point um, for, for the customer segment. I think we really, we really favor backing people that we think have, have pretty good business savvy and pretty good business intuition. I think the reality is when you first back somebody for an idea, the chance that they end up actually running at that idea in the end is, is, is quite low. Um, and so it's nice to know that if we back this group of people to run after idea A, if it turns out that the market isn't there for idea A and they want to run at idea B, we'd, we'd equally be happy to be in business with them to build idea B. Um, you know, I think we also look for people that we can collaborate well with. It's, it's a difficult, there's, there's so much uh, angst and uncertainty that goes through building a company particularly for the better part of a decade. And I think one of the best things I took away from Catalan is having just phenomenally honest, transparent, candid, supportive relationships with your board. So then let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Rob, and you wake up in a world where the vision of asymmetric is fully realized. What yep. does that world look like? So, yeah, if, if, you know, if I woke up and the vision of asymmetric is fully realized, I think that the industry has a reasonably well-deserved reputation for VCs practicing kind of helicopter board membering where they disappear for 89 or 90 days and then show up for one or two and, and try to kind of throw their weight around, often with very little context. And I think we were... We were lucky not to have that at Catalan where we had board members that were truly committed and spent more time with us. But I think the, the reality of the industry in the main is that, that that's probably more true than not, that the VCs kind of parachute in and they say things that, that are really important to the founders and the founders hear those things and, and sometimes make business model pivots around it. Yeah, and look, we, I'd say, look, the most important thing to us is that we're just the first call of our founders. When things go well, when things don't go well, we just want them to reach out to us and if we don't have the information, we can't assist them. I think your relationship you have with your VC is not different from what you have with your lawyer or your doctor or, you know, many other trusted specialties. And if you want to get the most out of them, I think transparency and, and kind of early warnings are, are really important. And I think our, what we have to do in exchange, we want founders to be really transparent when they come to us and something's gone badly. We can't be mad. We can't point fingers. We have to be really solution oriented. And we really have to say, okay, this is the set of facts on the ground today. And assuming they didn't do anything unethical, um, this is what we're going to do to help you out of it. I think sometimes founders are actually quite rational because they feel as if they have to be perfect to their VCs because in the reality, a lot of times the next round is going to come from the existing VCs. And so people don't like being transparent with their VCs because they always want to seem like everything's perfect and everything's going well. And I think one of the disciplines I kind of bring to the table as a, as a former founder is that I know everything is not always going well. And I know there's lots of there's lots of issues. And we sort of, in a world where we know that everything isn't going well every single day, founder can be honest and transparent with us and we can workshop that with them or they cannot. And we never hold it against them. I think the happiest phone calls I get from founders 
are when they're super transparent with us about what's going on. And I almost don't care if the substance is good or bad. Now, imagine I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time, perhaps to that moment that you were still, you know, at Harvard Business School, wondering, yeah. you know, like what the future, you know, hold. And you had the opportunity of going back at, at that moment and sitting your younger self down and being able to give that younger Rob one piece of advice before starting a company. What would that be and why, given what you know now? Um, that's so interesting. I guess I'd say... Um... I guess I'd say, uh, you know, I, I tended to get very, um, I just sort of had believed that every single thing that occurred was, uh, was such a big deal. And the reality is no, no great development is quite as good as you think it is. And no, um, and no bad development is as bad as you think it is. And I think have, probably having had a slightly more long-term point of view would have made the experience a little more emotionally stable for myself. Um, you know, it's 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 difficult when you're running a company because you're so emotionally invested in it, and it's so much a part of you. It's not a job. It has, it has nothing to do with any traditional job you've ever had. And you know, I think I, I found as a as a founder, um, I think that's what that's what I try, try to transmit to our founders is how can I help you mute some of the emotional cycles of this company. And I think one way that VCs can do that, and they sure as hell did that for me at Catalan, was uh, make clear that they're on our team and they're going to be helpful and they're going to help figure things out. And, and that was something really special that they did that they did for us. I love that. So Rob, for the people that are listening that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to, to do so? So if folks want to reach me, uh, always available on Twitter. It's Biederman Rob. Uh, and then also just through the, the asymmetric website. Um, every, all the sort of contact information is there. Amazing. Well, hey, Rob, thank you so much for being on the DealMaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks, Alejandro. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, Share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.